When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. It's already been a very busy day for <laughs> Richard and I. It's been a stressful uh, day stressful, for Jamie. Stressful, yeah, a little bit. Um, a lot of news coming out or potentially coming out uh, around the Timbers, the things we're seeing on Twitter, potential transfer window moves. Obviously, we're recording on Tuesday, the day before uh, the transfer window closes on Wednesday. So by now, you may have heard some of these moves. We'll see uh, if uh, a lot of what we're speculating on today um, if anything changes in the next day but I, I think we already have some news to talk about today um, coming out of the transfer window so yeah I think we have a lot to talk about busy podcast <sighs> where should we start should we start <laughs> with the tr- should we start with the transfer news or should we start with Saturday's result Let, let's start with the results okay. uh, and then get into the transfer news and then uh, we'll also have an interview with Ann Peterson of, yes. of AP which is really fun and probably a little less stressful than uh, talking about transfer news and what's going to be happening, at least from my mind. So yeah. that's so really exciting. We'll tell you who Ann Peterson is as we go into the interview. <laughs> uh, most of you probably know her, but it's also good to give some context because I think people know her as a in-house writer that covers the Timbers and Thorns. But as she goes into during the interview, her background in sports transcends that a yeah. bit. But let's focus in first on Saturday's result. Later in the show, we'll talk about Sunday's result with the Thorns. Saturday's result, a 3 to nothing victory for the Timbers that was a little less convincing than that final <laughs> number indicated. We'll go into that a little bit, but to review the predictions from last week's show, Jamie predicted a 2-1 to one victory for the Timbers. Uh, how do you feel that prediction holds up? I, I don't think this game was really a 3-0 game. Uh, I think it was a 3-0 game. <laughs> In terms of the feeling of the game. Uh, I don't think the feeling of a 2-1 was... I, obviously, the Timbers sort of, at the end of the game, put it away and ended up 3-0. Kind of felt like a one and a half to nothing. Two, yeah. I don't think 2-1 was all that. Uh, t- I think it was an okay prediction. Obviously, not right on the money by any means. Who's giving points this week? I think it's me. So I'm happy for you to get points this week. That's fine. I will give my points. Um, you predicted an Andy Polo gets his first assist. Had a chance to, yeah. but it didn't actually. So, had a chance to score too. So side bets haven't um, worked for you recently. So I, I think yeah, you're going to have to get zero points on that. I think I'm going to um, go crazier with the side bets in the future. I'm getting <laughs> bored by my side bets. So bored. Well, I'm going to give myself 11.6 points. That seems fair. What if I made a side bet that a helicopter landed on the field in the middle of the game? If it happened, you could get, you could get the magical uh, infinity points. Or <laughs> you wouldn't be a little bit suspicious that I knew ahead of time that a yeah, helicopter was going to come. I would. Okay. All right. Um, but yeah, reasonable prediction. I think um, we all knew what was going to happen in this game. Philadelphia had an open cup matchup the Wednesday following the game. 
really weren't that good to begin with. A decent, I don't want to say that good. Decent MLS team. We kind of compared them to Houston and Montreal in the sense that this is a team. When they come to town, you need to take care of business. Ultimately, the Timbers did. I think a lot of the fan discussion that you and I have been seeing is comparing and contrasting the first half hour with the last 60 minutes of the game, which I think is a perfectly fair compare and contrast. Yeah, I think the... And Giovanni Salaresti said this after the game, but obviously in the first half hour, the Timbers really struggled to create anything going forward. They were missing Sebastian Blanco to a yellow card accumulation, and I, I think we're too reliant on hoping that Valeri and Armenteros um, kind of were able to create something on their own in the attack, but they were playing too deep. They, they weren't getting their numbers forward like they needed to, and, and uh, to the club's credit, they did adjust after those first 30 minutes. Um, for me, it was more, uh, in some ways, a, a tale of the first half versus the second half. Um, while they did adjust after the 30 minutes and started creating a lot more, I thought that and part of that was Andy Polo getting more involved in the attack. I did think his chemistry with Valerius and Armenteros was off. What do you mean by chemistry? Because, I mean, I, I always end up doing something stupid like this every podcast and being like, what do you mean by this? But chemistry is one of these words that I don't know if people are talking about the kind of personality relationship, the ability to read each other. Or sometimes I don't even know if people know what they talk about when they say chemistry. They just say it because in sports, <laughs> we say words at different points, but we never stop to consider what they I, mean. I think he was having trouble reading the runs or, or anticipating the moves that th- those players wanted him to yeah. make or or... Um, want the runs they were making so he could potentially pass them. I think there was a few moments where you, you could tell that lack of anticipation kind of cost the Timbers chances they yeah. would potentially have had. So I, I think even though they created chances towards the end of the first half, I don't think they came as close to scoring as you might have wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And then I do think it, uh, it changed a bit um, in the second half. Yeah, I don't think there's any way to deny that. And not even in the second half, there was just a point. We keep saying the 30-minute mark. I think it actually happened a little bit later in the half than that. But it seemed like over the last eight or ten minutes of the half, there were three or four really good chances, a couple of which you just alluded to with the lack of a connection in the final third or, in one instance, the lack of finishing. But I think those were good indications that the team had figured something out. Coming out of this game, and I wrote about this on Timbers.com, I think the question is whether the team either should have figured something out sooner or should have been put in a place to not have to figure something out? Should the plan been, have been different from the get-go? I, I guess there's no real way to answer that because given the U.S. Open Cup, it was so hard to predict who Jim Curtin was going to start, particularly in midfield because if he starts Harris Medunyin and Alejandro Bedoya, the whole capability and shape of the midfield changes a lot. So I don't know. I don't think anybody with the team is truly satisfied with how the first half hour went. And in that way, um, they didn't really get close to a Goldberg 90. <laughs> no, I, I, I feel like the last three games have not really been close to, if you want to call it, a Goldberg 90. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the Timbers have had uh, faltered a little bit in the last three games. They, they've had, obviously, moments. You know, the Montreal game, they had that fight. Uh, to be able to come back, and that was promising. Um, They were able to get the win in the last two games, Houston and Philadelphia, and ultimately, after getting the two penalty kicks and and the set piece, I I mean, in the very end uh, of the Philadelphia game this weekend, the Timbers ran away with it once, I think. um, They scored the first goal. Uh, It it was pretty much clear the Timbers were going to win from there. Uh, But there is, I think, lessons to come out of these last three games. And, and, well... You can't be really concerned with two wins and a draw. 
Um, it, it's definitely, I haven't seen any, I, I don't think they've been dominant performances from the Timbers against, uh, especially against a Philadelphia team where you might have wanted to see more of a dominant performance. And uh, I, I don't think that they've been the complete 90-minute performances or, or the tactical um, uh, kind of chess games that Savarese has been able to lead this team to earlier this season and that's been so impressive during this 15-game on bean streak. I think that these last three games, there's been a little bit more coming out of it to talk about it in terms of are there things that this team needs to work on right now. I completely agree. I mean, on one hand, I think to myself, what is a reasonable standard for this team's level 20 games into a season. And I think they're probably meeting every reasonable standard you can set for that. But I also do think it's fair to ask, where does this team need to be? Where can it be going forward? And that's really what people are asking here. When you're asking for dominant performances, you're asking for the team to continue to improve, basically. So they haven't gotten there yet. But I think that's worth discussing as we go forward how they can continue to do that, uh, particularly in attack. Because defending... We had some questions about the defense over the Montreal game, over the Houston game. We talked about Julio Cascante. Julio Cascante was not a problem at all um, against Philadelphia. But in attack, I think that first 30 minutes really clouds our mind. And even in the second half, I thought that it's not necessarily that the attack was bad or good, but a lot of it just came from um, the tactical shift, and we didn't see like a huge uptick in creativity or anything. Uh, in fact, Philadelphia pretty much gifted two of the goals. Yeah. So I think questions about the attack are reasonable, but at the same time, this is the path that Savaresi set this team down when he completely pulled them back after the New York game and said, okay, taking care of first things first. The attack has obviously made progress over this unbeaten run, but they clearly have more progress to make going forward. Well, I think one of the questions coming out of the game, and we can get to, I I think, a listener question um, about this as well, is, is sort of, does the club have enough firepower in the attack at this point? They send Audi to FC Cincinnati. Um, Espria was, at least in this game, their first option off the bench. And in the Houston game when Armenteros was out, was the the forward in the lineup. So he seems to be fitting into that sort of second forward role. Um, But he he scored a goal uh, against Philadelphia, but it was on a penalty kick that Mm -hmm. Diego Valeri gave him. He has not been able to be a scoring... he hasn't been able to score for the Timbers from outside of that PK. Um, even though he's created good chances, that that last shot um, hasn't come off for him this year. And yeah. whether it will, I, I'm not sure. Um, so one question we did get from a listener, and I think a lot of people were asking about this from Bobby. Uh, what will it take for Langsdorf or Bo to get some first-team minutes over Spria? Um, and, and do we think that's going to happen? You know, the Timbers are going to be facing a compacted schedule this month. It is now the month that, that we could start seeing that. I mean, I don't have much to add to this. I know this is a big topic amongst the fans, but what it will take is those players showing that they're better than Dyron Espria. And same thing for Tomas Konechny, um, whoever else comes in. If you show from Tuesday to Friday you're better than Dyron Espria, you're going to play. Uh, I think a lot of people, rightfully, because it's the most important thing you usually want a forward to do, focus on Dyron's goal-scoring production. Um, I think, I mean, it needs to be said, when Dyron played for T2, he did get sent down to T2 for three games this year. He scored two goals in 190 minutes. Those are better goal rates than both Langsdorf and Abobasia produced at T2. And also, when you watch those games, it was pretty clear he's cruising at that level, like he's above it. I don't think you can say the same for Langsdorf and Abobasia. So even me saying Tuesday through Friday, he's got to outperform him. If you watch on the weekends, too, at the level these guys have been playing at, Dyron has been a better player. That being said, 
he's not the perfect player. I mean, the, the club knew what they were doing when they gave up Adi. It's a step back. That's why Adi was getting that playing time before. So I think it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask, Is the does the club have enough in the tank here? Say Foster, Langsdorf doesn't step up. Jeremy Obotbusi doesn't step up. Thomas Konechny takes time to settle in. Is having Dyron going to be enough? And I, I don't think there's a clear answer to that right now. Yeah, I mean, if the club is in a situation where they need someone to come off the bench in the, in the 75th minute and score a goal because they are tied or they're losing and they need that goal, I don't think they have that right now. I mean, if if Aspria, even though he is not scoring, is clearly outperforming a Bobasi or Langstorff, that speaks to me as they have some depth issues at this point at Ford. And the transfer window has not closed yet, so we'll see what, what changes. But if that's the reason those players aren't playing it, and what other reason would it be? I mean, obviously, if Abobasi or Langsdorf were outperforming Espria, um, we've seen that Savaresi gives people opportunities if they're outperforming others in practice. It doesn't matter what their name is. He he will give his players chances. So if those players clearly aren't performing Espria, and we've seen what Espria does which is a lot of great things, but not that finishing touch. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I am a little bit concerned about this the, this Timbers team going into the home stretch of the season and into playoffs, not having maybe, you know, what they obviously what they had in 2015, having a goal scorer like then Maxi Rudy coming off the bench and being able to get that goal to win them a game um, in, in the playoffs and help them advance or, or getting a goal that helps them get critical points to move up the standings. Um, I'm not sure this team has that, that right now. Absolutely. Um, that's the risk you take when you trade a Fernando Adi. We've talked on this podcast before. Gavin Wilkinson has given quotes about the fact that, like, when you have a designated player and they're not starting, it becomes an inefficient use of resources. That's fine. But when, even amid that inefficiency, if you let an Adi go, you're weaker. Yeah. You don't bring another player in, you're weaker. If Dyron really was so good and ready to step in, he would have gotten playing time before. He would have more than the... I can't remember if it's 392 minutes or 362 minutes he's gotten this year, but obviously that's not a huge amount of time. Dion's perfectly capable of doing a job, the job that Giovanni Savarese has been setting out for him. I think it's important to note that almost any time he's asked to do a job, even when he's starting games, he's starting games with the idea that Volari and Blanco are going to carry the scoring load, that he's going to be the person that's creating space, that he's the person that's going to be occupying wide areas and winning the ball and possessing the ball there, and he's going to be able to occupy defenders. I don't. I agree with you. There isn't a lot of proof right now that says that you can write Dyron's name into the lineup or bring him in in the 75th minute when you're down and expect a goal, and I think that's where somebody else is going to have to step up. Let's go to the next question. It's from Marty. Uh, so how about that 3-5-2 formation? Did Gio roll that out due to A, Sebastian Blanco being suspended, B, Philadelphia expecting to rotate their squad, C, Savarese deciding to throw out something different, or D, all of the above? I mean, I don't think it was that different of a formation than we've seen at times this year. I, I think he was both reacting to what he was, ex- as he's told us, he was reacting to what he thought he saw from Philadelphia and what he was expecting them to throw out. But I, but I also think, yes, it, it was a reaction to Blanco being out because I, I think he'd ha- he would have had more options in terms of his thought process informations if Blanco had been in there. I, I think he, he is, was somewhat limited by the fact that he's missing, obviously, a key attacker and has to adjust that way. So I think it was a combination of those two in terms of throwing out something different. He, he tries to throw out something different every week, but it, this isn't a brand new formation that we haven't seen. It, no, it was very similar to the approach against Houston. I think that against Philadelphia it was the same shape, but they, as we saw at the beginning of the game to not great effect, the team played more like a true five at the back and was willing to absorb. Whereas against Houston, 
Albus Powell, Zarek Valentin were releasing from their positions a little earlier, trying to add the width to midfield that would help enable a possession game. It's a little bit weird to talk about this as a 5-3-2 or a 3-5-2 because we have certain conceptions in our head of those formations. And most formations that we picture in our head are pretty balanced left-to-right approaches. We're seeing increasingly that the Timbers aren't actually trying to be balanced in that way. They're trying to flee up the right flank for Alvis Powell. They're trying to leverage his athleticism, his ability to cover that ground, his ability to provide a threat in the final third. So it's hard to conceptualize these formations um, when you have that kind of effect on the right. I mean, like you could say that Barcelona was playing a 4-3-3 during the heyday of Danny Alves, but in some games, Pep Guardiola would start Danny Alves's position along the defensive line. Is that still a four at the back? Kind of, the way we conceptualize it. Either way, how we think about the formations right now, I think really has to be influenced as by how you see Alves Powell's role being implemented on a game-to-game basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, with the way Alvis Powell is playing right now, um, I, I, I think this is obviously a role the Timbers would like to keep him in. Um, I, he's done well in one of these formations that Absolutely. they're playing to them. So, Well, we were talking about the forward situation before. Uh, this weekend on Sunday at Providence Park in T2 game, Tomas Konechny, the high-profile acquisition that uh, I think was – Really high profile, not only for his resume, but the fact that we kind of didn't see it coming before it actually did. Uh, He made his North American professional debut playing an hour for T2 against Phoenix Rising. Um, I guess, you know, I was there, but I think a good way to go about this is just from your point of view, what do you think fans are expecting of Konechny based on the information they have, the lowercase h hype that has been around (laughs) him so far? Well, I think there there is a decent amount of expectations for him coming in, and because we we know that if he pans out here and the Timbers decide to sign him, he'll be a young designated player. This is not a cheap signing. He's going there. He's they're going to have to use significant resources uh, to sign him permanently yeah. if he pans out. So the expectation, and I think this is the expectation of the team. You know, talking to Gavin Wilkinson is that he's going to showcase himself over the next year and prove that he's worth a designated player spot. Um, So, I mean, you were out there this weekend. I I mean, the expectation should be, I think, that we'll see first team minutes from him quickly and see this showcasing. But based on what you've seen... Well, I think a good touch point here is I'm sitting here going, you know, Jeremy Obobese is doing this at T2. Uh, Foster Longstorff is doing this, and Espria was better than them. Thomas Konechny was closer to... Langsdorf and Abobasi and his effect in what he was doing than Espria. So for me, based on what we saw on Sunday, the idea that he can step in and get first team minutes, he was on the bench on Saturday for the team for the first time. I, I don't know. I don't didn't see it. At the same time, it was a noon kickoff. It was uh, at Providence Park. It was his first game against pro competition in this part of the world. This part of the world, especially at USL level, sometimes it takes getting used to just based on the athleticism that we have in this country and the players that tend to be successful in this country when they come over. Uh, I guess that's my way of saying USL is a unique beast, and it wouldn't surprise me if a talented player needs more than 60 minutes to adjust. But based on what we saw on Sunday, I'm not seeing somebody who's ready to contribute to the first team right now. Yeah, and if, if that, and we'll see. I, I do think, you know, we don't want to judge too much based on one game. The first minutes, young kid, Absolutely. new place. So we'll see how he adjusts over time, and we'll see when he gets his first team minutes. It's hard to speculate right now when he is actually going to see those, given that 
as you're saying. You know, you're not seeing yet that he's necessarily ready to jump into a first team spot. Um, but we'll see how he adjusts over time. But if he doesn't, you know, quickly move into a role where he can can play some sort of impact, I think that raises even more questions about the the forward situation right now for the club. I completely agree. I think that. I think it's a good reminder that we just can't expect 20-year-old kids to hit the ground running here. I think it's more than reasonable that he's going to take two, three, four games to get used to just not only the style of play in this country, but what's demanded him from him within this club and just getting used to the people that are around him. And that would be fine. That would be perfectly acceptable. But in the context of what we were talking about before, if Tomas Konechny is being counted on as somebody that's going to augment the depth chart for the first team over these next three or four months of the season we need to see more than we saw yeah. on Sunday. The, obviously, the transfer window, the roster could change uh, before uh, the end of tomorrow, Wednesday. Um, we've already found out today that the Timbers are sending what? Vitas. What? What? We've already found out today. What? Who found that? What? It's on Twitter from uh, Stephen Goff from the Washington Post. The Timbers have sent Vitas to D.C. United. What? I saw that guy today. <laughs> well, this is... This is this shocking. shocking to you. It's shocking to you. Um, I've reported it. There's, so Vitas will be on his way to DC United for the, um, the Timbers will be sending him there. And there's also a lot of reports out there, I which I don't think is surprising, um, that Lucas Milano uh, mm-hmm. will is on the verge of coming back to Portland as well. So those are the big moves yeah. that look like they're about to happen, haven't been officially announced. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see if there's other moves coming coming from the transfer window. Um, yeah, I think listeners are probably 0% surprised that Milano speculation yeah. continues. And I think, like we've been doing on this show, we've been speculating as to what Milano would look like in the first team at this point. In lieu of an actual move, I'm not sure there's anything more to cover there. Vitas, however, it does... It shakes up the left-back depth chart, that's for sure. Yeah, and I, I still wonder. I've been saying that you know the Timbers might look to get a left-back, bring in another left-back during the transfer window. I think, as we've talked about with Zarek Valentin stepping up, yeah. it, it wasn't as much of a priority for them. But now, in terms of depth there, losing Vitas, do they still add another left-back before the transfer window ends? We'll see. I think that's up in the air. Um, but but obviously Vitas wasn't playing, and, and with the salary cap hit, I, and this makes sense for them, I think, to offload him and send him to a place where he's going to be able to get back on the yeah, field. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a weird thing because I think Valentin has not only played well, but he's really fit in well, and he's evolved his role within the team. But there's an obvious place on the depth chart that needs to be filled right now because the team has basically two left backs within the organization at this point, the professional ranks of the organization, Marco Fortifan and uh, Zarek Valentin. So you need to go out and get somebody probably, or else you're relying on random people to fill in. Um, and I mean, it's just, I, I don't know what Gavin Wilkinson, what Giovanni Savarese, what Ned Gravavoy's mindset on, on this, because before on the show, we would say, look, the Timbers are always going to go out and try to keep improving. That's what you have to do in MLS, et cetera, et cetera. But I also don't think that we anticipated Zarek Valentin fitting, fitting in so well. So I honestly don't know what's going on with the left-back situation. Mm-hmm. Vitas being traded, to me, is not a surprise if it happens. Um, I mean, I think we pretty much know it's going to happen right now. I'm saying if it happens because we haven't gotten an official press release. But um, we've known that Vitas losing his spot, it, this could be something that happens. And so I wish him the best of luck and wherever he ends up. I think one more question on Milano we should hit before uh, we move on to previewing uh, the Whitecaps game on, on Saturday. It's just a question for Patrick. Uh, with Milano, uh, he says rumors, but now looking pretty sure that he's coming back in. Where do we potentially see him fitting in in the lineup? And do we think that Savaresi can get more out of him than Porter did? 
I almost feel like you should answer that. <laughs> I, well, I feel like you should answer it because I'm curious about your point of view, but I don't think Savarese is going to give any less out of Milano than we saw in 2016. Uh, I think that part of the bet of bringing Milano in is that the Timbers now have an environment that is better for people like Lucas. Yeah, I think being in an environment with more Spanish speakers, obviously there's Spanish speakers back then, but a coach that speaks the same language, it makes it a little bit easier. I, I think also just Milano being here for a second time, the transition is going to be easier. He's older. I think there was a lot of expectations on him as a young kid, leaving Argentina for the first time, coming in an environment with a coach that didn't speak the same language as him, and immediately being this top goal scorer that was going to be worth $5 million. And that was a lot of expectations yeah. that was um, – he. Timbers probably shouldn't have put that many fans, Timbers, at the organization on him coming in for the first time. This is a chance to try it again, uh, see now that he's a little bit more mature, knows the organization, and has a different coach if it fits better. And yeah, I think the language barrier does make a difference, so maybe Savaresi can get more out of him. In terms of where he's going to play, I, I think the Timbers, I, I've heard that the Timbers see him a, as a forward option, maybe even more so than the winger option they saw him before. He can play on the wing, we know that, um, but he also could potentially play as a second forward uh, or, or you know, uh, up top as a number nine. Maybe he becomes the guy that you have coming off the bench if he can really prove himself. Yeah, it's such a complicated transfer. I keep wanting to go back and forth with this topic in my head because he did come in before with a transfer fee, a designated player tag. He's going to come back with a designated player tag, assumedly. Maybe there's going to be something about this deal that'll take that away from him. But I don't know that the organization looks at him as so much like this is a designated player caliber um, acquisition that we're making. It's more, we are in the Lucas Milano game. We, ha we have been in the Lucas Milano game for a while. We feel like he can help us for the rest of this year how that matches up with the designated player tag, it feels like something that they're going to have to resolve in the off season. Um, and maybe that makes his, his performance over the three or four months that he would be here. Should he elect to come back even more important? Mm -hmm. So yeah, moving on to Saturday's game against Vancouver. Uh, First time the Timbers play Vancouver, Cascadia rivals this season. Uh, obviously, because of the change in the schedule, they're only playing Vancouver twice this year. Um, so only home game against the Whitecaps. Um, Vancouver will be playing on short rest, just like sort of Philadelphia was gearing up towards the Wednesday game and sort of rotating their lineup. Vancouver is going to be um, playing in the Canadian Championship on Wednesday and then in this game after. So maybe the Timbers will have a better idea of how to predict based on how that game goes. But I think we could probably expect some rotation on Vancouver's part as well. Yeah, I wonder. I, I mean, I definitely think we could, but from Giovanni Savarese's point of view, he's always saying that you have to prepare for all scenarios and not knowing which of the Whitecaps players will and won't be rotated. It's almost as if you have to you have to prepare as if everybody is going to play because you know there's a possibility that anybody can play. It's weird. I mean, I, I've never thought about it this way before. Um, and it's the same thing with Philadelphia. You know, I think that. Uh, Giovanni Savarese kind of corrected me in the press conference today when I approached him about this, but I think he had to prepare this weekend as if Alejandro Bedoya was going to play or Harris Madunyan was going to play, knowing that it's a high probability that one of them won't play. As it turned out, neither of them started. But you you have to prepare as if they are. And I think it's the same way. Like They have to prepare as if Davies is going to play, as if Kamara is going to play. And just on a pure physical level, those guys are those guys are a handful. Yeah. Like Kamara, say whatever you want about him, but when he's matched up one-on-one -on -one against the center back, he's as dangerous as anybody in the league when you're targeting him. And we've all seen the highlights of Alfonso Davies <laughs> this year. So I, I don't 
it's almost at the point where like I don't care what Vancouver's record is. When you have players like that, you can get beat. Period. Yeah, and I, I think it could be an exciting game to watch just because of those players to see how the Timbers match up against Vancouver, even though their record doesn't really um, highlight. <laughs> it doesn't seem like those players are carrying them to the playoffs right now or anything. Yeah. But um, yeah, they have some weapons, and, and this is will be the fourth game of uh, the Timbers' four-game homestand. If they are able to get a draw or win, they will uh, beat the franchise record, set a new record for un- their unbeaten streak at 16 games. Um, and I think just having this homestand, uh, you know, after evening it out with the away games early in the year, they want to take advantage of it. They want to leave this homestand with the finishing up the last three games as nine points. I completely agree with you. I think coming into this homestand, I kind of said to myself, if they got 10 points out of four games, they would be in a position where I think they'd be really excited about it. And I think to a certain extent, they already are there. They're second in the in the conference at this point. I don't think anybody thought they would race all the way up to catch Dallas, although Dallas with their loss at home to San Jose <laughs> seems to be helping out at this point. Uh, but there's also a sense now that they're there that if you lose this game to Vancouver, you're giving something back. Savarese all year has said one game at a time. I think you and I both believe that's the, that's the actual mentality of the team. But the longer this success goes, the more it stresses that mentality. So it's almost as if every week we have to look for a crack in the armor. And you never know it's until kickoff whether it's there or not. Yeah. So moving on to some listener questions before we talk to Anne. Um, we'll just hit a few. Um, I'll let you pick which ones you want to hit. Well, I'll ask this first one because you know how I feel about this, and I don't really think I'm in the best position to comment on uh, the public sentiments of my owner. Uh, Matt asks, what's your reaction to the back and forth between Merritt Paulson and Matt Doyle on Timbers Youth Development over the past couple of weeks? Well, I think we've been talking about this a little bit today. I mean, the Timbers, you can just look at the minutes. The Timbers aren't giving a lot of minutes uh, to younger players that have developed here. They have some younger players that they've been giving minutes to, like Paredes, um, that are coming from abroad. But in terms of developing players, homegrown players here, or bringing in draft picks and then giving them minutes and having them turn into MLS mainstays or stars, Timbers don't have a great track record with that. Um, And so I understand the sort of criticisms out there on the Timbers for for maybe not uh, emphasizing youth development. And... But at the same time, I think there, there are two sides to this. I, the Timbers are still young in terms as an MLS organization. They're still building up uh, their, their academy system. So I think in three, four, five years, we might be seeing a very different te- Timbers team doing something very different than they are now in terms of youth development. They clearly have a lot of players that they want to develop. Marco Farfan, Foster Langsdorf, Eric Williamson, Jeremy Abobasi. They have a lot of these players within the organization that they think highly of and hope are going to develop over time. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's some concern. And for me, I, I, I am, I'm wondering what's going to happen with these players. Are they just going to get caught down under the depth chart and, and never see that playing time? I mean, Abobasi hasn't been able, or Langsdorf haven't been able to see an opportunity this year. And now that Audie's gone, you think that maybe they're going to get that opportunity, but so far it looks like Esprit is the second striker. So where are these opportunities for these younger players going to come from? They obviously need to earn it, and Savaresi isn't going to play someone just because he wants to get the minutes. But if you keep pushing players further down the depth chart, when are you going to be a team that develops develops youth talent? So I, I think there's a lot of questions about where the Timbers sort of fall on this and whether they're going to get to a point where they can develop um, players. I don't think they have a proven record at that as uh, with that now, but that could be to some degree about just them being young and sort of 
having any focus on youth development and having an academy system. Adam asks, from what I have seen, the major difference between Porter and Geo, Porter is a textbook theory guy, uh, created strong identity. Geo is more feeling slash intuition, does better reacting. How do you two see the different coaching styles? Um, I'm going to run with this one a little bit just to give you some time to, um, well... We think about it, I guess, because maybe you were thinking about the other one while I was thinking about this question. Um, I don't. I think that um, I think there's a lot of truth in that, but I also think on the geo side, it's an oversimplification. I think to contrast him against Porter, yes, Porter, Porter does seem like more of a theory guy, more of a guy to draw draw it up on the board, look at things from a kind of a philosophical, abstract level. And Giovanni Savarese definitely is informed by his playing experience and invest a lot of time into the mentality of the players and convincing them that beyond tactics, your execution, your ability to beat people, your ability to read the game in real time and react is important. But I think that, and I fall into this trap a lot too, you see that and you don't think somebody is a tactician. Geo clearly is familiar with training multiple different formations, is familiar with training different styles, is familiar with implementing different approaches within that style. And some would say that's, more tactical knowledge than if you stick to one system and one philosophy. Yeah, I think that Caleb was more set in his ways in that he had an idea of what system was going to work the best. Uh, He had a philosophy of this is what works best in soccer and sort of stuck with it. I think he reacted over time and made changes to that and adapted to MLS to to get a team that won, and I think he was effective at that. Mm -hmm. I think Savaresi is, as we've seen, more willing to adapt his formation Mm -hmm. game-to-game, really focus individually on the opponent of each game, maybe um, whereas Porter maybe was focusing more on the team itself rather than the opponent to the degree Savaresi does. And I think Savaresi is more willing to change his lineup and there aren't uh, players that are sort of set in roles. Um, I, I think that Porter obviously had competition in training too, but there were players like Ridgewell that were always going to be in the lineup when they were healthy. And <laughs> we've seen that yeah, Savaresi does true. not uh, fit in exactly the same that way. Well, we were talking about it at training today. I don't think we need to go into specifics, but I think we both feel there are specific games this year where Caleb Porter's more focus on developing a system that is going to be consistent and mastering that system would have led to more dramatically more dramatic results. And there are probably other games this year where Giovanni Savarese's ability to adapt has gotten the team at results where they probably wouldn't have gotten results before. So um, it's definitely a six of one half, uh, Baker's dozen of the other. Yeah. Um, so one more listener question we wanted to get to before uh, we talk to Anne um, is just from Lyle, and it's prediction on final number for the unbeaten streak. I don't make predictions. <laughs> well, are you, you're not going to predict? No, because then, right. well, I mean, I, my instinct was to predict this, but whatever number I predict, that basically means we're like the team's losing the next game. <laughs> so that's an that's an all right. Well, prediction. I'll predict it. Okay, um, seventeen. I think the Timbers are going to win or draw the next two games. Um, but I'm not as convinced they're going to be able to on short rest, then go on the road to Kansas city and avoid a loss. I'm not high-fiving you. You didn't make a prediction. Um, now let's bring in Ann Peterson, Annie Peterson, uh, AP reporter, 
um, <laughs> AV reporter, and obviously here in Portland, uh, she covers the Timbers and the Thorns, but she also covers, you know, Oregon, the Blazers. She's she's out there everywhere. If you see sports um, in Oregon coming from an AP reporter, uh, very likely that Annie wrote it. Um, and Annie has been, as we talk about, uh, as we'll talk about with her in just a few seconds, uh, she's been covering sports for, for 30 years. She's been in this business for a long time. So much knowledge. Um, it's been great for me, you know, coming into this industry and learning from her, just being around her. Uh, I sit next to her in the press box. Um, so I'm really excited uh, that we had a, a fun chat um, about with Annie about her career. And uh, here it is now. Okay, well, because I'm a woman and I'm a journalist. Well, These are two a, things I, I know just, about. I mean, you're not being a journalist, <laughs> but you unfortunately right unique that. experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're recording right now. Okay. okay. Yeah. So the part where Anne says she's a woman <laughs> and she's a journalist, she did her introduction for herself. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a that's not a fair introduction. That is, <laughs> that's not fair. What do I not know what that I'm is so much. Yeah. These are the two essential facts, right? <laughs> that you need to know. They're two of the essential facts. I mean, you're much more well-rounded than those two things. But <laughs> it's part of the reason you're here. At least the journal. I think the, the journalism side. Yeah, you would be here. You'd be here whether you're not. But. I, I guess let's start there, since since we had this interesting intro into that. Um, yeah, I, I was, as I was saying to you before we, we hit record, um, obviously, uh, as, some, as a sports journalist, I know as a woman, you're often the only person in the room. Um, but my experience is probably very different than yours, in that you've been doing this a lot longer than me. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, how has that experience been saying that maybe... It, it is part of kind of the job you have to you have to acknowledge I mean the, talk, talk about what challenges maybe you've had to face as a female journalist in this industry so they have shifted right so when I first started out in the business the 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 challenges I faced were from within Right, so it was the athletes who were skeptical of the fact that I should be there, or it was the coaches, or, or whatever. And now it's the fans, right? So it's kind of shifted to this realm where you know you get a lot of hate on social media, and you don't know what you're talking about because you're a girl and that kind of thing. But, but when I first started out, it, it was such it. You know, it was 30 years ago. So I, I started writing sports 30 years ago in Boston. Um, I was covering the Boston Red Sox. And um, what happened was there was a woman in Boston, and her name was Lisa Olson. And Lisa Olson is a famous uh, yeah. female sports writer and used to work for the Boston Herald. And uh, she walked into the New England Patriots locker room, and a player named Zeke Moat said something to her. And uh, she called him out on it and made it public. And the owner of the New England Patriots, a guy named Victor Kayam, called her a B-I-T-C-H. I remember right? this now. So, um, so anyway, so that, when I arrived in Boston, that had just happened. Like, literally had just happened. And so they said, Annie, go cover some Red Sox games. And so I'm like, okay. And I, you know, and I'm 20, whatever, 22, 23. And I'm like, 
going over to Red Sox games, and they bent over backwards to make <laughs> sure I was happy. Okay. They did not want a Lisa Olsen situation. The Red Sox did not want anything remotely like that. So, like, I had all the home phone numbers for all the players. <laughs> I had the home phone numbers for the boss, you know, the, the – um, the, the front office staff, there was a game where Vice President Dan Quayle was going to a um, was going to a Red Sox game and they put they said they assigned me as the reporter that would go in the limo with Dan Quayle <laughs> to the Red Sox game. And I the only thing I remember about the whole thing is I said so, are you a Red Sox fan? And Dan Quayle looked at me and he goes, I am today. And I'm like, that's a good answer. You didn't ask him to spell Red Sox. So, so yeah, so, like, compared to, I guess, some people who really had to, like, claw for sources and that kind of thing, I didn't have to do that, right? I They were handed to me. I mean, everybody was really trying to make sure, that, and, I, and thank you, Lisa Olson, right? Because she made my transition super easy. Um, I got to the Bay Area. Um, there were a few female journalists that were in the Bay Area, that uh, Ann Killian, yeah. you know, comes to mind. Mill Valley, my hometown. <laughs> right? Ann Killian is the greatest. Um, Nancy Gay uh, covered NFL football. Oh, I worked with her at Fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's she's amazing. I mean, just really amazing role models for yeah, me to have. she's really cool. Joan Ryan, uh, who worked for the Chronicle for years and wrote this amazing book called Little Girls in Pretty Boxes about figure skating. It was It's one of the best books about figure skating ever written. And um, so those people were like... Like there were enough, San Francisco was a big enough market and it was progressive enough that 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 transition was easy too. I mean, I just lucked out with the places that I went, and um, and oh my God, I, I I haven't had. I mean, there's, I had great role models. I was really really blessed, right? But there was a lot of time. Like I would for a long time, I was the only female beat writer covering the Raiders. Mm-hmm. There was no other. There's you know, I walk into the room and. It's me, and then there's, you know, the team. Yeah. Right? So a little bit intimidating. Players were really good. There were certain players that were really good in taking me under their wing. Lincoln Kennedy was amazing in terms of, you know, being kind and, you know, professional. Um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the Giants, I covered the Giants, and I covered Barry Bonds, and he was only nice to me when I was pregnant. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, the joke was when I left and I came up here to Oregon, the um, I had covered I covered the season that he hit most home runs in a single season, but the next year was the year that he hit the most yeah. home run record, right? And the joke was because I was the the person who took over the Giants for me was a guy. And Barry wouldn't talk to him. And the joke was, can you just come down at the end of the season when he's near the locker and put a pillow under your shirt so that it looks like you're pregnant so we can talk to him? So, um, But, yeah, and there are still – we've come a long way, right? There are still – Incidents. I'm, I'm a little surprised though that the numbers haven't really changed, right? You know, you look at the numbers of 
women and minority journalists yeah. in sports. And those numbers haven't shifted a whole heck of a lot, right? It's still like 14% women minorities and then the rest are, are white guys. Yeah, so, you can see in the Timbers locker room every, after every game. <laughs> right? So, so, and those numbers haven't changed. And, and that kind of surprises mm. me. I, you know, I'd like to see those numbers actually go up. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like they're going up. Right, it doesn't yeah. feel like they're going up. And like from the last, you know, sports survey of that group down in Florida, the numbers aren't aren't going anywhere. Um, the where 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 I get it now is like, yeah, obviously in social media you get, you know, you get the comments and then you get the emails and you get the death threats and stuff like that, and that's always really fun and. You, you've been there. Um, internationally, um, there are still times when I'm still the only girl in the room. At the Olympics, I, uh, there was a press conference with Brazil, and it was like they called the press conference at 8 o'clock at night. And, and so I made my way to the stadium at 8 o'clock at night, and I'm sitting there, and I'm the only girl. And there's like 200 people in this room. <laughs> and I'm like, this is bad, right? But I got this guy, this great guy on Twitter, who uh, sent me a bunch of messages saying, you know, in international soccer, there are women who are like TV reporters, but there aren't a lot of women writer writers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, especially international. And he's, yeah. so he's like, it's really good to see that there's somebody who's, who's a writer. So yeah. that was it. So um, for the AP, I think I was the only woman writer in the field. Yeah, Kevin Baxter, uh Early in the tournament, tweeted out a picture of the media room in St. Petersburg. Yeah, and I like quote tweeted. I go, "There's something missing because it was just all dudes, yeah, all Caucasian-looking dudes throughout the whole media establishment at the World Cup." And it was funny because he had tweeted it out, just kind of like, "Hey, this is the environment that we're in for four weeks." It's like, "Yeah, there's something missing there, buddy." <laughs> like, just, like, I, just one note before you send that picture out, you might want to see how other people are going to look at this and go, "Yeah." That's that's the sports world, right? Yeah, you have the you have the women who the who are the on camera personalities, but you don't you just don't have a lot of like you're day allowed, to day. You're allowed to be on camera. <laughs> no, no, thank you. <laughs> I won't be. That's okay. I'm good. I'm good behind the scenes. I'm good writing. I'm a good keyboard jackie. So, no, yeah. I think you should just keep talking. Right. I'm, I'm <laughs> just listening to you. And well, talking about the World Cup, I, I just. I've heard some of your stories from it already. I, I think the listeners would be interested, but I mean, covering the World Cup, obviously that's such a big event. And um, from your perspective as a writer there, uh, to talk about some of, some of the things that stood out for you. All right. So, uh, so I have both told you guys this story, but I'll tell this story. So I, um, I flew to Russia. I, I, it was like a 12-hour flight from L.A. to Moscow, and then I waited in the airport for about four hours and caught a, caught a flight to Samara, and I was going to be based in Samara for four weeks. That was my whole job. I was, I was covering all the teams that came into one venue, and I was in charge of that venue. And I get to my hotel in Samara, and I go to the front desk, and they say, where is your immigration paper? And I'm like, what immigration paper, <laughs> right? And they said, at the airport, you needed to be handed a piece of, a white piece of paper with handwriting on it that said, you're allowed to stay in Russia. With handwriting on it. Yeah, it was literally, Welcome it was literally supposed to be written on hand, by hand. And so I said, 
I didn't get a white piece of paper. So what had happened was I got off my flight in Moscow and I went to somebody who didn't speak English very well and said, I need to go and catch a flight to Samara. Where do I go? And they pointed me down this hallway. And I never went through immigration, right? I just went down this hallway <laughs> and went into the terminal to get on my flight to Samara. And, and so nobody gave me a piece of paper. So I get to the hotel and they're like, we can't check you in without this piece of paper. And it's like, it's 9.30 at night on Sunday night, right, in Russia. And I'm like, I don't have this piece of paper. I don't know what to do. And so I cried. And they gave me a lot of wine. And they said, finally, the AP Bureau in Moscow called them and said, please let her stay the night. Just let her stay the night, please. We'll take the heat. Just... You know, she can't fly back to Moscow tonight. There's no flight. So you're basically just sending her back to the airport. And um, so, uh, so they let me spend the night. And then this wonderful girl on the front desk at the hotel actually took me herself to this office, this little yellow house randomly that had words on the front that I couldn't read and they and after fingerprinting me and taking my photos and like laser scanning my eyeballs and everything after three hours they gave me this little handwritten piece of paper that said you can stay right so, so you got to cover the world so cup. I got so I got to cover the world cup but from what I understand by that time FIFA was starting to get involved because it was like no 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 she's got to she's got to be able to stay right it's the AP so um, that's the good thing about working for the AP right you know it's like they have a little bit of a pull so um, so uh, so yeah so I got to stay so the next day was like uh, you know getting my credentials and going to the stadium and there is this so so Samara is a cool place because it's the birthplace of Russia's space program all right so there are pictures of like cosmonauts on buildings and paintings and everything space themed so the stadium at Samara was designed to look like a flying saucer so and it so it was that was kind of a cool connection to the city right and they have a big space museum and what happened it was after World War II they had all these people working on like planes and stuff for war and they converted that to space right after the war and so that that was their whole mission was to get to space and you know the arms raisins get to space before the united states did and um and it was it was also a closed city it was a closed communist city so like visitors couldn't go there um so so that you know so learning about that history was really fascinating there was um a play uh, stalin had a bunker there that was 12 stories underground that was <laughs> the when they they built it so they never thought that germany was going to get as close as they did during world war ii but when they started to get closer they started to freak out a little bit so they built this bunker <laughs> this bunker underground to house stalin and his family and stalin's family was sent actually to samara to live and they didn't live in the bunker they lived outside of the bunker but um but in case stalin had to make a hasty retreat to um samara there was this bunker and there was like their their idea was there was no place to sleep because the the thought was he would be having to 24 7 work on the war right so he wouldn't be able to sleep 
right? So there was a office for him with a beautiful desk and then a boardroom for his generals and that was it that's all there is down in this bunker and and the thing about the bunker is that it's super cool and you get down there and you like looking at all this stuff and then you're faced with climbing 12 stories back up to the top (laughs) that's the hard part um but yeah so so the world cup the world the soccer itself was freaking amazing and i had to like i like there were times where I had to like stop from just like sitting there with my mouth open, right? And you know, like when Luis Suarez, so we covered um, Uruguay at one of our games, and and it was like, and I'm like going, oh my god, I'm seeing these people in person, right? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't travel a whole lot outside of my job, so, um, so because I'm afraid of flying, but, um, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I'm I'm not gonna go over to to go ever see Premier League games. I'm just not, there's just, it's not gonna happen. And um, and so this was like, it was like, I had to like stop from, he scored like 13 minutes into the game. And I'm like, oh my God, he just scored in front of me. And it was like, you know, so I like kind of geeked out, right? That was, <laughs> it was, so it was hard, you know, sometimes it was hard. It's like, okay, Annie, focus, bring it back, you know, bring it back in and focus on the writing and, and stuff like that. So, but, you know, it was fun to see, you know, Neymar. It was fun to see these guys, you know, that I had only, that I, you know, that I'd never been able to see. And like a lot of those Russian players, I'll never, they'll never come through the United States, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so... Um, I never saw France, and I never saw Croatia, mm-hmm. so I didn't get to see that. But I, uh, um, England, got to see England. That was cool. Got to see Uruguay. Got to see Brazil, Serbia. <laughs> <laughs> um, I my first match was Costa Rica, so I got to see, see David, David Guzman. <laughs> he spoke to me in English a little bit afterwards. <laughs> That was cool, and um, so yeah, so um, the soccer was amazing, and uh, and the, the I mean it's you, and I don't want to diminish the MLS, but when I was at the game the other night, there's a huge difference between those games. Yeah. So um, there's a there's a massive difference. Um, and I'm not diminishing the MLS, but it's not the World Cup. Um, and <laughs> I think Hopefully that's, nobody I think that's fair enough to say, to say right? Yeah. I think that's fair enough to Hopefully say. Hopefully they realize that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the deadline pressure was more intense than almost anything I've ever covered. Mm-hmm. So um, people care about their World Cup. And yeah. they want their quotes and their stories and everything yesterday. <laughs> and so the, the deadline pressure was intense. Um, and uh, we and there were constant we wrote constant stories throughout the game so it was not like you wrote a game story at the end right after every goal we had a story after halftime we had a story after the final bell we had a story and then there were two more stories after that (laughs) with quotes you know from you know the press conferences and then with quotes from the mix zone mm-hmm. and so so yeah the, so the whole process and like lineups there were stories on lineups so you know if somebody was missing whatever it's like that's a story so um and sidebars galore so um the pressure the pressure was was 
more intense than like say an Olympics. So, how did you sort of get into soccer reporting? Because you covered you know baseball, <laughs> NFL, um, and soccer is obviously a big part of what you cover now. You do other things as as well. So. Soccer was an accident. So, um, <laughs> um, I, the, so the thing is, is that when um, there in twenty in well way before twenty eleven, when Merritt Paulson came to town and was talking about bringing an MLS team here, I was here. So I covered that the whole way. So so I remember standing out, you know, in front of. You know, at that time it was PGE Park, you know, in a tent and it was pouring rain and there was merit and there were the city council members and they were like, we were going to make this happen. And, you know, skeptical journalists being me, I was like, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> it's like, but, but it happened. I mean, Merritt was, Merritt's a compelling guy. So, um, uh, then, um, so I covered the soccer. So I had to learn soccer, right? I mean, I couldn't just, and there had been opportunities along the way where I'd covered random soccer games. Um, but, um, but then what happened was the Women's World Cup was coming to Canada. So in 2013, I started hearing people talking about, and actually I think it was the, it was the NWSL players that first introduced me to it. So I kind of, I covered the Thorns there was a rally, right, after mm -hmm. the Thorns won the first championship. And I got to meet Mayor Charlie Hales at the time, right, you know, and, and I was there. And, um, and that's when I think I first heard the players saying, you know, oh, it sucks it's on artificial turf, right? And I was like, and so I kind of did a little research and I said to my boss, you know, this artificial turf thing I think is gonna be a big deal. But the national media really hadn't done too much on it so I went and um, talked to a bunch of players about how the artificial turf sucked and you know Sydney LaRue was great and and um, and Abby Wambach was great and um, then Abby and Hampton Dellinger the attorney the Washington DC based attorney started talking about you know maybe filing something in Canada, in court in Canada to change it. And so I'm writing this story, right? And I get the whole story done and it is ready to go the next day. And I'm like, okay, this is good. This is gonna be a good story. I'm really excited about that. That night, Tom Hanks tweeted about it, right? So all of a sudden it was like, that was my lead. Right? I like completely rewrote my story and said, you know, this, this, even Tom Hanks is concerned about artificial turf. I don't even remember what I wrote. But it's like that story went everywhere yeah. because it's like the minute you get Tom Hanks in the lead, it's like click, 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 right? You know? And, um, and so that kind of got me. The, the, so the bosses in New York, you know, when you get, when you get Tom Hanks in a sports story, <laughs> they started to notice. Right, so um, they were like, "Okay, well, this is your issue. Then you keep following this, and you kind of make this your your thing, right? And you can talk to the players and everything. And it was great. Here's what was really good about it: it was great because the AP initially did not care about the NWSL, and I was able to say, 
well, I'm doing all this other stuff, so I, I should be covering the NWSL <laughs> too, right? You know, and I'm going to be doing these little features along the way. And, and so, I, so I was able to do that. And, and because they thought that it was worthwhile, they gave me permission. To, they, you know, they allowed me to go and do that. I mean, a lot, you know, my bosses, college football is my bread and butter, right? So they want me on college football 24-7 unless I come up with a good reason not to be at college football. And that was a good reason, right? And uh, Kobe Bryant got involved in the whole turf thing too. And so, and even better, right? Yay, yay <laughs> me. You know, Kobe Bryant's tweeting about it, right? So, um, so that so it was a good thing, right? In the end, for for AP and you know we still don't do as much NWSL coverage as I like. I'd like we don't cover the games. We just put out the scores, but you know I'm able to go to people and say, hey, listen, you know, can you go do a story on Carly Lloyd being you know right at Sky Blue now and 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 they're more receptive um, to that. And then people teams come through here and I'm able to do different features like that. Um, but anyway, going back to the original story, blah, 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 um, <laughs> um, I get this phone call um, in 2014, summer 2014, on my home phone, which was weird because um, I have, and it was from AP in New York. It was like the New York number yeah. for AP and it was really bizarre because I have a cell phone <laughs> that's issued to me by the AP so that they can reach me anytime day or night right so but they were calling me on my home phone so my thought is I'm fired right that was my <laughs> that was my initial thought I'm getting laid off this is the call right so I'm like on my porch right picking out the phone hello, this is Annie, right? And it's like the sports editor in New York, and it's the deputy sports editor in New York, and it's my boss in Phoenix. So it's all three of them on a conference call. So I'm like, I'm toast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, start looking at, you yeah, know, different jobs. This is it, right? And um, they said... And my boss says, well, you know, we really like the stuff that you're going to do. And I'm like waiting for the but, right? You know, we, we love the stuff that you're doing. But, <laughs> um, and it's, it's like, we love the stuff you're doing. And how would you like to cover the World Cup next year in Canada? And that was, that was the thing. And I, I think that they made it into a big deal because I think that they were concerned I was going to say no because I didn't want to be away from my kids that long. Right? I think that was, in, in, in essence, that's what they were doing because, you know, I've always threatened after Olympics that that was my last Olympics because, you know, I missed too much, you know, I missed too much time and it's a grind and everything. And I think that, that they kind of thought, okay, well, you mm -hmm. know, we better ask her, you know, in person and stuff. And, and, um, and they said, and I said, yeah, great. I'll cover the Women's World Cup. And they said, good. They said, make all your flight arrangements, get all your hotels together, get your, you know, I mean, like literally they said, you are in charge, right? And I'm like, okay. I had no idea what that meant, right? <laughs> I had no idea that that meant, you know, trying to figure out travel schedules for the U.S. team and training camps and <laughs> hotels and, you know, and rental cars and all that kind of stuff. I mean, and for 32 days, for 32 straight days. So, and being afraid of flying, it was gnarly. But, um, but in the end, and, and, you know, and also come up with 
story plans, right? Yeah. I mean, I had to tell them in advance, okay, on this day you're going to get this story, on this day you're going to get this story, on this day you're going to get this story, and so, you know, the whole thing, like spreadsheets galore, right? You know, there were all kinds of spreadsheets happening. So, um, so but it, I think it turned out okay, yeah. right? I think it, the, my, my best, <laughs> my favorite, favorite story about the Women's World Cup was AP's account tweeted out the final story that Carly Lloyd scored the hat trick to and the US women win the World Cup. And it was retweeted by Ted Cruz, <laughs> the candidate um, for president at that time. I think he was already running. Maybe yeah, he was already running. It was twenty fifteen. I'm sure he was. And um and I got like a million followers, like instantaneously, <laughs> right? And then the next day, they all figured out that I was a sports writer and not a Ted Cruz. Person. <laughs> <laughs> they all unfollowed me. But it was like it was really bizarre. It's like all of a sudden my followers went up to like you know I have a, like a steady five thousand followers, right? On any during any given time because I you know I've kind of gotten away from Twitter, but um, but they. Uh, but yeah, and then they all unfollowed me the next day, and it was back to five thousand. So my my brief brush with kind of sounds like they were all bots. It might have been. They all went away. They were all Russian bots. One of those one of those Twitter cleanups that happened just the right time for you. And thanks again to Annie from for coming on. It was really great. Um, some of those stories, I <laughs> I just want to have story time. I told her this, but I just want to have story time should, with Ann Peterson. Should I pretend um, we haven't done the interview yet, like I did last week? No, we have done the interview. So don't don't make any pretend. We've done this interview. We did it earlier today, in fact. Um, but yeah, it's to to speak with someone with that much knowledge about the industry. Um, I hope I hope the listeners. You're saying things uh, that we could have said without actually. No, I don't expect you to go into the details of the interview. It was great to, to talk to Annie. It. it was great to talk to Annie, one of our favorite people yeah. through this job. So we got to hang out with her for half an hour today at the training center. Maybe you heard a little music in the background, <laughs> a little music on the background. Um, but let's move on with the show because it's been a long show already. Let's get to the Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take interlude. I'm going to go first here because you always go. First, All right. um, my hot take is that um, Twitter, Timber's Twitter in particular is better for Chris Reifer's hot takes, um, and there are a lot of them. I've been a couple instances over the last week or so uh, before the Philadelphia game uh, talking about uh, Dyron Espria. I think talking about the trade deadline here. Um, I've definitely looked at his Twitter feed and been this is kind of a hot take, but it's just it's still fun. Because it's it's a guy that obviously is very knowledgeable, uh, very right on a lot of things, and not right on other things. But I have more fun on Timber's Twitter for Chris Reifer giving his opinions about things and me interacting with Chris, even if a lot of the stuff like from the point of view I'm at right now is wrong. But it's that's part of engaging in sports, right? Is that you say things that you feel you're trying to read the tea leaves. Like, yeah, of course you're not going to be right all the time. You're not in the club. That's almost not the point. The point is to talk about these teams with a level of passion and a level of discernment that kind of advances things. And even though it's frustrating sometimes to kind of sit from where I am right now and kind of go, well, that feels like it's wrong. I still think like, Timber's Twitter is just like way, way better for Chris Reifer's big air quotes, hot takes. <laughs> I, 
I think that it's really nice that Chris didn't really retire because he clearly didn't retire. Uh, he retired from the podcast. He didn't want to talk to me anymore, apparently. Um, so Which is a shame. Me. Well, not a shame. I'm glad he did that because now <laughs> I get to talk to you and terrorize you for two days a week. But, I mean, and he, he doesn't write for Stumptown Footy anymore. But he's still, you know, maybe not in the reporting capacity. But I think Chris has a lot of knowledge from all the years he covered the team. Absolutely. And, um, even if he's giving opinions on, on Twitter, uh, I think they come from mostly a, a pretty uh, knowledgeable perspective just from knowing the league, knowing the Timbers, understanding the organization. So um, he's not quite a fan. I mean, he is a fan, but I, I feel like there's a little bit more knowledge behind that from all the time he's wow, been Wow, you're reporting. insulting fans right now. There's fans I know a lot, too. I, in yeah, fact, no. actually, I, I've gotten ideas from fans, and so I should know what I'm put down in terms of story ideas. Um, fans no. know a lot, too, but just from him being around the club and being in the press box and everything, I think he brings a different... Um, perspective and absolutely cool that he hasn't fully retired and is out there giving his opinions. I mean, like a good example is the whole conversation we had in the first part of the show about the forward depth chart. He's been harping on it on on um, on his timeline, and you know some of the conclusions as he he's made about the club's willingness to play Jeremy Abobasi and Foster Langsdorf. I know they're not right, but implied in why, why he's even bringing it up is the fact that these decisions have not been explained enough. And from his point of view, this is what he's concluding. All right, well, if he's concluding something incorrectly, what can people like me or Giovanni Savarese, that's weird to put, what can people like Giovanni Savarese and Gavin Wilkinson do uh, to explain the club's position a little bit more? So I think even in those situations, it provides a voice that at least lets us know like these are real issues that should be addressed or at least talked about. And sometimes I think there's a middle ground where your opinion and his opinion there might be a middle ground in there too. <laughs> we always eventually find it. Like uh, yesterday we found it that I was uh, taking the word appetite and inferring something from it that isn't necessarily inherent in using the word. So there you go. Um, but I think that's actually a pretty cold take. We're still really bad at hot takes like me well, saying that Chris Fiverr's tweet like Chris Fiverr's hot takes on Twitter's are entertaining that's not a hot take that's just like a fact <laughs> well my hot take apparently is a little bit of a hot take because people were kind of getting on me after the or during the all-star game yeah about I hate this. this hot take um I'm just gonna say it because I'm very um I hated absolutely hated uh in the all-star game when they mic'd up uh, Brad Guzan, and not only just mic'd him up, had him report back to to the announcers on um, was was it on ESPN um, during the game about what was going through his head and what was going on. They had him helping commentate while on the field during game. And I know it's an All Star game. I know it's not serious. But I cannot stand, and I can't stand it in any sports. I do not like when they have like baseball pitchers talking mid-inning um, on the side or coaches in baseball games. <laughs> players, I don't care if it's an all-star game, I don't care if it's a real game, players and coaches should just be able to have the game and do their job and play the game and, and be involved in that and focus on that, and they shouldn't have to talk to the media during that time. I'm very, I feel very strong they should have to talk to the media after that time, <laughs> but they should be allowed to play the sport they are paid to play. We normally have so much trouble getting your mic levels right for this. This is the first time you've ever been topping out. <laughs> like you were, you were I, irate I'm right there. Yeah, no, I, I have well, a strong opinion about this and a lot of people don't agree and I understand why they don't agree and I understand why all-star games are just all about fun. But I, I, I really, it really 
probably bothers me as as Matt Doyle said. I was one of the people freaking out. He pointed out, what is it like to be one of those people freaking out on Twitter about a, a goalkeeper being mic'd up? And I was like, oh, I got to explain what it feels like because it, nice. yeah. It was it was emotionally difficult for me to listen to that game. You're actually making me wish I watched the All Star game. <laughs> I can't comment on this because there's no way I'm watching an All Star game. All right, I think that was a hot take because apparently people t- reminded me that the All Star game was a joke, anyways, and I shouldn't be so concerned about it. But I'm glad I had a chance to just. I don't yell feel about like that's a what bit. a hot take is. Well. People said that it shouldn't matter. Because they're not saying you're wrong. They're just saying you're taking it too seriously. Or they're, well, like, they're not wrong. That's fun during an All-Star game because who cares? But I whatever. care. Okay. Even if it's an All-Star game, I care. I also <laughs> don't feel like it's a hot take because it's not like... All no, right. I, yeah. Well, you okay. can just keep, keep calling our takes cold. Let's move on to the Thorns. Frozen um, take. The Thorns... Uh, I want to hear your hot takes about this game. <laughs> we'll see. Um, the Thorns went to North Carolina. They lost 2-1. to one. North Carolina claimed claim the NWSL Shield with that win. Our predictions, I predict that North Carolina would win 2-0. Uh, that's not got the right number of goals for Carolina. It was a little bit closer in terms of scoreline, at least, than I predicted. Uh, your side bet was that North Carolina averaged 7 point, they averaged 7.2 shots on target uh, per game, and they'll go under versus the Thorns. What a terrible side bet. Just um, I deserve negative points. Such they, a boring side they had, bet. Also, think they had ten on target. And I think so, or nine, ten, or nine. I can't remember. I just I'm falling asleep <laughs> even thinking about my side bet. Oh I think my it was, God, it was uh, so 32 shots for North Carolina, and either nine or ten on target. So, yeah, oh, um, you get zero points again. Thank um, you for being generous with that. I should be like suspended <laughs> from betting for a week for that boring bet. I'm going to give myself uh, 16 points. <laughs> because I think in terms of the feeling of the game, I don't think that game was a 2-1 scoreline feeling game. And I think that me and Richard might disagree a little bit on our uh, opinions coming out of this match. I think North Carolina could have scored three or four goals. I think North. I think Portland could have scored... Two at most, but one seems right. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I think I both agree in the big picture with how people are seeing this game, but think it's nowhere near as bad as some other people think. I think, and here's, I actually have the shots down right here. Um, Portland was outshot 31 to 9, 10 to 2 on target. I, I think that in terms of scoreline, yes, this is an improvement for the Thorns off the last time they played North Carolina and they lose 4-1 to one at home. Obviously, that was a massive disappointment. And this time they showed, yeah, we can kind of compete in the same ballpark as North Carolina. But for me, what was disappointing coming out of this game is that it still felt at this point in the season um, with the Thorns playing pretty much the top lineup they're going to have available. Ellie Carpenter was really the only absence. Catherine Reynolds was also absent, but she's out for the season now, so you can't really include her in their top potential lineup for this year. Um, It still felt very clearly to me that one of those teams on the field was better, and that team was North Carolina. Agreed. North Carolina is really, really good. And teams going to North Carolina are going to have a really, really hard time staying close to them. I completely agree with that. To me, uh, I think people know I've followed this league excruciatingly closely. North Carolina is the best team that has played in this league. Will they be the best team that's ever played in this league six weeks from now? I don't know. I suspect they will. That gives the Thorns six weeks to catch up to them. And I think the Thorns have a lot of good things to build on from Sunday, but they have a lot of areas where they need to catch up to. 
I, I see a path to where they can have a better chance of an upset in the championship game. But the reality is, North Carolina is just really good. They're really hungry. They are just dialed in right now. And yeah, I, I think to the extent that the Thorns failed on Sunday, they failed a lot less than most teams would do in the same circumstances. Yeah, um, I still feel like we need to see more from this team. So I, I think you come out with a little bit more positives um, leaving this game, uh, thinking that the Thorns can get to the point they need to in the next six weeks. And I come out feeling a, a little bit more on the negative side that this team's just not ever going to be at this point. And we'll see. Where in my mind, the Thorns gave up five good chances in the game. If they aren't playing in North Carolina, maybe those go down to two or three. If they're playing here at North Car- in, in Portland... Maybe they generate one or two. They generated one on Sunday. I think they generated more than one on Sunday because there were a series of chances in the first half that we forget about because we remember how the, the half closed, where, North, where Portland was able to get behind the defense, play to the area between the penalty spot and the 18-yard box, and generate chances for Christine Sinclair in the fourth minute, uh, put a ball over the bar that usually she gets on frame. And we forget about that because of what happened afterwards. But when you go back and watch it a couple of times, I kind of obsessed over this game a little bit. Um, You see clearly North Carolina is the better team. Like, that's not news. But you also see a path to where if the Thorns tighten up a little bit and you get them in a place that, quite frankly, the Thorns are lucky enough to have the championship game at home this year, I think the Thorns are going to be an underdog, but it wouldn't be the most shocking upset in the world if the Thorns won the title game. And one other thing coming out of this game is uh, Caitlin Ford makes her uh, Thorns debut. She sure did make an impression on them, didn't yeah. she? <laughs> the <laughs> exasperated face of McCall Zerboni <laughs> just like with her hands up, just like, look at this, what's going on here? Good job, Caitlin Ford. Yeah, I thought she was really active in the attack. I clearly um, going to be a gritty player. Um, I mean, but it, it, you could see how she could really contribute quickly to this team. And even though she's coming right off injury, you could see her being in this season in the next in the next five games in, in the playoffs being a difference maker in the attack i mean they already had a good chance uh, in the second half where they had tobin heath play a ball to haley rosso at the arc who laid it off one touch to sinclair who then played it left to ford and ford hit her shot straight at caitlin roland caitlin roland caught it but that was a good chance it was at an angle that roland should manage it, it was about 12 yards out but when caitlin ford is back in game rhythm she probably hits it low into the far post it's another example of the Thorns just weren't that far off. I think talking to Mark Parsons after the game, the biggest problem with him is the second goal is just inexcusable. It was the type of goal that we were seeing earlier in the, in the season, just like, you guys should be clearing this ball. They didn't even do anything special. What happened here? So it's almost encouraging that that was the game-winning goal because you would think where the Thorns have gotten to this point in the season, most of the time that gets taken care of. But the first goal, I think Mark Parsons was extremely frustrated by because in his point of view... They had trained to preclude that type of play all week. Very direct, very quick. Hey, keep them in front of them. Let them cross high and play in. But don't let them get to the spot where Jessica McDonald was able to nail a ball across the six. And so he was frustrated by that. At the same time, I just don't think it's realistic to say we're going to go a whole game and completely limit North Carolina's chances. You are going to give up three or four good chances. You might generate two or three. I think right now, realistically, you just have to hope the breaks go your your way and get close enough to them in that final game so that you can have the breaks go your way. And are you concerned? They dropped to fourth with the the loss. Um, are we? Are you concerned coming out of this game of the drop points, or given the schedule ahead, does that not really matter? I don't know. I, 
Can I think about it a little bit? Do you have an answer? I think that, I mean, I allude to the schedule ahead. The Thorns, and we're about to get to it, will play Orlando uh, on Saturday. They'll play Chicago. They'll play Seattle. Those are the four teams that are vying for three playoff spots. North Carolina has claimed those. Um, the Thorns are in fourth right now, but they're only if they're only one point behind Orlando. I'd have to look up the number there behind Seattle. But they are right in the mix between that two and five spot. Um, the most important games are going to be those three games. And the points would have helped. Any points would have helped. And it's disappointing that the Thorns go 0-3 against North Carolina and don't manage to get a single point uh, out of that team this entire season. But mm-hmm. if they can now go and beat Seattle, go I mean, start with Orlando, go and beat Orlando, beat Chicago, beat Seattle, I mean, they're going to be in playoffs, and even if ties in some of those games. This is still in the Thorns' hands, so it doesn't bother me quite as much that they drop points at North Carolina in terms of their playoff chances, at least. It, this is where my bias comes into play. Not so much that I'm going to say things about the Thorns that are going to make them look better than they are, but you do get this tunnel vision to where this is what this team is doing on a ba- daily basis. This is my job to focus on it. And from that point of view, I don't look at this Carolina game as points lost, so I don't look at it as a setback. I still, when I watch all these NWSL games this weekend, think that the Thorns and the Rain are the second best teams in the league. And the Thorns have that final meeting between the teams at home in the last game of the season. None of that has changed as a result of the North Carolina loss. So for me, from my bias point of view, where I'm very tunnel vision on those things, everything is still fine. Now, if somebody else came and kind of pointed things out like, oh, this team has this route and this team has this route... I've already looked at those two. I'm just not worried because I think the Thorns are the second best team in the league right now or as good as the second best team in the league right now, which means I think they're going to do well against Orlando. I think they're going to do well against Chicago. I think they're going to do well against Washington. If they can stay within reach of Seattle for that in that last game of the season, I think those two teams will rightly fight for second place. Well, looking at Saturday's game, that's going to be at Orlando at 4.30 p.m., um, I, I think what we were just talking about leads right into this. I mean, is this a must-win game for the Thorns in terms of the playoff race, or at least a must-not lose? I look at this as a must-win because, to me, the Thorns standard isn't making the playoffs this, at this point. For me, it's finishing second place. If they lose this game, I think they can still make the playoffs. It'll be much harder, but I think they can still do it, particularly with games against Chicago and uh, Seattle ahead. But are they basically giving Seattle too much of a margin for second place? So, yeah. And now that I'm talking about this, I think the emotional hit will be huge. You can get out of North Carolina and feel good emotionally because you made that progress over the two months between the 4-1 loss at home. If you then go to Orlando, a team that drew 2-2 at home to Sky Blue this weekend, and you lose, and in your heart you you think that you're a better team than Orlando, that's going to hurt. Yeah, and I, that's the, what I was going to point to more. I think that losing it would be massively would be a big problem for the Thorns in terms of the playoff race. I think they can get away with a tie and still be in a good position in the in the playoff race. Although I agree with you about the second place, but yeah, I think the emotional toll um, a, a win would give them a lot of momentum coming out of that uh, as they're continuing um, with these final four games and trying to get some big results to get, to get in the playoffs. A tie or or. I think a tie or loss are different. I think a loss would be emotionally crushing. Um, but even a tie, I think, would not, uh, yeah. in terms of confidence, be, be a good thing for the Thorns. It would definitely depend on how that tie went. Like, if it was one to nothing, they control most of the game, a bad penalty call at the end, you rue your bad luck and try to stay focused. If it's one one where you felt like you had to scratch it out and you just don't know if you really are as good as Orlando, that's going to be bad heading into the last parts of the season. Um, let's talk about Caitlin Ford a little bit more. We talked about how she played in North Carolina. 
do you think she should be starting now? And if so, who shouldn't be starting? I, I don't see her starting quite yet. I think that she'll No, 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 get, no. Do you think? I don't think she should be starting yet because okay. I think that she probably needs a, another game at least to sort of come off the bench and see mm-hmm. more minutes. Um, so I don't see her starting against Orlando. Um, I don't think she should start. I think after this type of in- injury, she needs a little bit of time to ease back in. Um, and so whether that's another game or another two games, um, something like that, I do think, um, given what we just saw from her off the bench, that, yes, she's going to be in the starting lineup when she is physically ready. Um, For? I think potentially after the Orlando game, I, no, I think. But who's going to the bench? Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, it's tough, but I think the obvious would be um, Serna Gorsovich, but she has played very well for the Thorns. But when you look at the lineup in the in, sort of in the attack, um, unless they're changing formation, I, I think that's probably the obvious move. I'm I'm going to throw out a couple of other options out here just to get your reaction because I honestly don't have much of an opinion, mostly because I can see Caitlin Ford not starting at all this year. But what if she? What if Haley Rosso went to the bench? I think that's, I mean, another option. I, I think what Rosso gives you sort of as a wide presence, I, I mean, I, I think it makes most sense depending on how they want to use Ford as a like-for-like like to sort of just be for what happened in the game, have certain Gorsovich come out. But, I mean, if you're just looking at players in the attack, yeah, I mean, Rosso could come out as well. You're not going to take off Heath. Uh, get in the midfield. You're not going to take off Christine Sinclair or Lindsay Horan. I mean, so your options yeah. are... And I think, I mean, I think a lot of people might say Celeste Bure and move Heat to the middle. I think that was something that Mark Parsons was considering at one point this year. But even, especially after watching the film so much this week, I'm convinced that you have to keep Celeste Bure in this team at this point. Like, just for what she does to the shape and the players around her, even if you feel like she's the 12th or 13th best player on this team, the position she plays right now, nobody else is filling then you have to keep her in. All right, the wild out of out of left field option here. After seeing what we saw from Jessica McDonald this weekend going out right, the success that Merritt Matthias had going out right, Anna Cernogoshevich at left back, and Caitlin Ford striking at a striker. I mean, we've seen that it's possible, but I, I don't I don't see that being the number first. Yeah, I mean that would also mean that one of Mitch Person and Ellie Carpenter yeah. on the bench too. I don't I don't think that that we're, we're going to see that one as a as a. I think that's more of a if we need to we'll do it, but not a from the get go. This is our best lineup. Anna Cernogosovic at, at central defense. She has played central midfield already this year. She's played <laughs> no. striker. She's played wing. <laughs> you're she's you're played getting fullback. too crazy. Now. Anna Cernogosovic in goal. How about that? She said she saved in practice a penalty <laughs> kick on Christine Sinclair. <laughs> I, I think I think you're what getting do you have a little, you're getting a little too wow. little too crazy. Wow, we better um, move on to some listener questions because you are not you're not. Well, I think the first listener question sort of uh, fits right into what you were saying. Oh no, <laughs> um, I don't want to pronounce this wrong. Damiengo. Uh, okay, uh, asks if you could clone one Timber and one Thorns player 17 times and have them play every position, including goalie and subs. Uh, who would you clone on each team? Well, for me, the Timbers' answer is obviously Lin, uh, Lindsay Horan because she's the most versatile player. She can actually play the almost The Timbers' every, answer? Huh? The Timbers' answer? Oh, the Timbers' answer? You said the Timbers' answer. You said the Timbers' answer is Lindsay Horan. Wow, I am punchy right now, aren't I? Well, the Thorns' answer is Lindsay Horan. Yeah, that's the obvious. I, that was mine, too, for the Thorns. 
Lindsay Rand is the obvious. Is the obvious. I, I'm sure. Yeah. She. I mean, she is. She can play forward. We know she can play forward. We know she can play in attacking midfield. We know she can play in defensive midfield. We know she can be of good defensive presence. So she can probably play on the back line as well. And she, she looks like somebody yeah. that could play goalie. I think. Yeah, she can play a possession game. She can play a t- uh, direct game. She, yeah, she, Lindsay Horan is awesome. Part twenty-seven of this podcast. Timbers, though. Yeah, Timbers is harder. Uh, I think part of the problem with this is like a lot of the Timbers who are their best players, you don't associate with being their most athletic players. So when you start tr- trying to transpose that onto other positions, you start seeing the limitations a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's harder. It is harder. Um, you know what? God, I feel like this is a hot take. My answer is Bill Tuiloma. Bill obviously can play midfield, defense. We've seen him play fullback. He's also quietly one of the more skilled people on the team. Uh, he is. He does have that degree of athleticism. He has some speed. <sighs> obviously, he doesn't have the high end at any position that you would have from a Valeri or a Blanco or even a Maviala at his position. I'm going with Bill. All right. I'm going to go with Sebastian Blanco. Tell um, me tell, because... tell me how this central defensive pairing of Blanco and Blanco is going to work. <laughs> I think... Particularly because he gives up a lot of fouls, so set pieces are going to be a test. <laughs> I'm, I'm on this as if you've had to think about yeah, this for a no, week. I've had to, I just think that in a quick just thought process of this, Blanco is a player that we know is good in the attack. We know he's willing to come back and do his defensive work. So I think he will be fine being a little bit of more of a defensive-minded player when he has to be on those sides. He might give up too many fouls around the box. There might be a few penalty kicks. Um, but I see him as a guy that do- totally is good with playing the defensive work, and you still have a lot of power going forward. So I'd feel pretty happy overall about Blanco. And, you know, he he's a guy that I, I think is super competitive, and he would find a way to be a good goalkeeper too. Okay, twist on the question. We're going long, but I can't resist this. You can pick a timber and a thorn, but six of the, six of the positions on the field are going to be timbers. Five are going to be thorns. Who are your two players? are going to be thorns well that makes it a little different i know you have to mix and match right um want me to tell you mine because actually it's at that point it would be laris and tobin laris would take all the defensive positions goalkeeper back four and defensive midfielder and then tobin heath would have all the attacking positions i was thinking of saying laris too for the the defensive i was thinking of seeing christine sinclair in the attack although i can see why tobin might actually be a better option um overall for yeah, the for speed those is what i want there. Yeah. yeah um so that's the thing what about there might, Laris and no, there'd be no speed in my in my laris and uh christine sinclair I mean, world laris and anna sernogochevich you would have just a very powerful team yeah huh all right, this question is too good. Um, <laughs> yeah, Damiengo, thank you so much for sending No, this. I'm sorry. You're banned from the show, Damiengo. You <laughs> us off track. Josh, uh, why does social media commentary appear to be harsher on the Timbers than the Thorns this weekend, even though the Timbers won and the Thorns lost? This is a great question. I thought about this for a long time after I read it. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the expectation was the Thorns were going to lose. Um, and the expectation was the Timbers were going to win. And so because the Timbers was not the decisive win you kind of expected against Philadelphia, um, there was yeah. there was more criticism of it. It's, they won, but it didn't feel like the win you wanted to see. Whereas I think the expectation was, yeah, the, the Thorns are going to go to North Carolina. And um, even though that's not what you want, they're going to lose. And so I don't think that was a surprise in any way. 
thank you for explaining that to me. I totally get it now. Final question, Jim. Is this is it time to start Purse and Carpenter at fullback over Megan Klingenberg? I I don't think so. I, I mean, I still I I can. It was tough with North Carolina. Klingenberg definitely got beat in terms of speed. Um, and maybe and someone like Carpenter uh, wouldn't mm-hmm. have had the problem with dealing specifically with North Carolina in terms of speed. Um, but Klingenberg brings so much, and that veteran presence, I, I don't really want to take her off the field. I don't either. But I will say this. We just went through a bunch of different combinations as to players who should and shouldn't be on the field. When you have a team like the Thorns, and we were talking about this at Timbers practice today, it's like you have to respect other people's commitment. And although I personally would probably still want Kling at left back at least for a while longer until this is, proves to be a pattern, you have to respect Ellie Carpenter's time. You have to respect Mitch Purse's time. You have to respect Anna Sertnogorsovich's time. And if they are legitimately better than whoever's competing at their position, you can't look them in the eye and say, we as a team are still deciding not to play you. So my answer is basically, I don't think Kling should be getting any breaks that anybody else wouldn't get. All right, let's move on to predictions. Um, first game uh, that we're going to predict is Timbers versus Vancouver uh, on Saturday here at home at 8 p.m. What do you got for your side bet? I guess I should go first because I got the prediction. I forgot that you yeah, were predicting. I was thinking about that, too. Yeah. It kind of naturally flowed to me there. And it's like, wait, Richard can never go first. Oh, yeah. let's try it. Let's see how it works, okay? <laughs> okay, so my side bit is that I think Sebastian Blanco, coming back into the team, we assume, will get a goal. And an assist. Wow. You're going so, so far out there. See, this is why you won't block out every position, because he's good enough to get a goal and assist in game, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, I'm going to predict the Timbers. It's not going to work with your side bet, but I'm going to predict that the Timbers are going to win. Wait, you don't want to change your... That's no. why I did this, because no. I figured, hey, I heard Richard's side bet. He thinks they're going to score at least two goals. I'm going to change this on the fly. No. Nope. Maybe Richard won't mention it to the listener who doesn't know better. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to so go stubborn. against you. Um, I'm predicting against the Timbers you. are going to win one Goldberg and Farley against each other yeah. already. Timbers are going to beat Vancouver one to nothing. It's going to be a little bit closer than uh, maybe a two nothing. With you might be thinking with the Blanco goal and assist. I don't know. Okay, let's do it again. Uh, Timbers Orlando. Thorns versus Thorns Orlando. Orlando. That's Thank my you. My fault for writing Timbers versus Orlando. But oh, you know um, what? I noticed that because we have already made our notes for next week already. And when I copied them over, I was like, oh, she didn't. She didn't change this one to Thorns. And then I didn't go back to this sheet and correct it. This is a good podcast, by the way. Well, I'm going to do my side, side bet first. Because I am saying that Alex Morgan won't score this weekend against the Thorns, nor will Sidney LaRue. So Marta's going to score there, I guess, uh, <laughs> um, in what I'm predicting is going to be a 1-1 draw. Wow. Did you, did you see what happened to the Pride this weekend? I did. Um, I just think that Pride ha- the Pride have a lot of talent, and they are going to... I think there's a tendency to play down to bad teams. I don't yeah. think the Pride. I think the Pride are going to be at their very best for for this game, knowing the implications. The Thorns also drew Sky Blue at home, so yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So we will see what happens. I don't think a draw would be the best resort result for the Thorns, but uh, maybe they'll prove me wrong. We will see. Uh, fantasy update. Uh, so it turns out, um, as someone who doesn't really follow MLS fantasy, that this year there's a spring league and a fall league. So. Last week was the end of the Spring League. Those were the final, the ones we announced last week were the final Spring League um, standings. I'm going to figure out something in terms of trying to figure out some sort of prizes for both Spring League and Fall League, but I'm going to figure that out at the end of the year. Still working on that. But now I'm going to say for the Fall League standings, uh, week one, Beer CFC is not in first place in the first week of the new Fall League standings, which is 
I really disappointed to Richard because he's gotten a whole beer, beer city FC cheer down and um, well thanks for joining us for this edition yeah. of Soccer Made in Portland we'll be back to you with you next week on yeah beer city FC is actually in third place with 96 points um, Blood Bath and Beyond uh, is in second place but it really tied in first place with Uncle Artie's Army at both of them with 97 points so your city FC, that one point, uh, there, there's a big, big gap they, they got to get back in, and uh, work their way back to get back in first place, that one point in fantasy. We'll see you next week if your city FC can be on top. All right, everyone, that's uh, all for today. Uh, we're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week um, on Stumptown Footy, OregonLive.com, and Timbers.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, week take care. <laughs>